Caring for the poor or for the marginalized isn't something that's on the outskirts of the work we do. But really, if we want to worship God, and I've been a worship leader for many years, that's one of the things I love to do. Okay. Um, um, and uh, and so to me, like worship is so linked to this justice. It's there. There are these combined things that again and again, Scripture keeps pushing us. Like, can you love me? if you're not loving your brother or sister and that then how we love each other affects how we love God and then and how we love God affects how we love one another how we see God and see the love and grace he's given to us then reflects on how we love each other welcome to another episode of the vineyard justice network podcast vineyard justice network exists to empower vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom VJN equips you by connecting the work of heart, head, and hands with key issues of structural injustice and leadership. Hi, everyone. My name is Kathy Maskell, and I am so excited to be sitting down today with my friend, Beth Stovell. And we're going to have a conversation about poverty, reconciliation, and hopes and dreams for the Vineyard Movement as a justice-making movement. So welcome, Beth. Beth is not only a brilliant mind, but a compassionate mind. You're based in Calgary. You know, you're the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Ambrose University, and you wear several hats there. The one that I'm, I'm most excited about for, for this call is that you're also the associate for the Canadian Poverty Institute, which is housed there. And why don't you just share for us like what you do with Vineyard Canada? Yeah, so, um, so I'm a national catalyst for what we call vineyard formation. So catalysts, their job is to sort of oversee, but also kind of push towards good new things around uh, the things we work on is theological formation and spiritual formation. And so we resource people and do teaching and things like that from children and youth all the way to our seniors, people wanting to do continuing education. We kind of help that across the country, but also if there are key kind of theological questions or spiritual direction that people want, um, we help to connect them with the resources here in Canada. These different streams for you, the the, the spiritual, the intellectual, the, the academic, and then just the socioeconomic, how does that come out of your own story? I, I sometimes say I grew up right next to the ghetto or like right next to the poverty line. My family um, grew up in areas where poverty was all around us. I grew up in some of the poorest high schools um, in Austin, Texas. I also grew up as one of the only white kids in my school. Um, So Mm. most of my friends were from either from immigrant families, African-American families as well, um, but also Mexican-American families. And that was kind of my experience growing up. In part, I think that led me to see poverty um, as a reality, real people that were my friends. You know, I saw what that what that did to their lives and what it meant for their lives, but I also saw resilience and what does that mean? I learned about the systems of injustice from like just even from elementary school up. Not until I got to university that I started reflecting backwards because at university, I saw a whole other world that I hadn't experienced before and suddenly realized, oh, I was growing up around poverty and I didn't, I didn't even really know that was just life. And so 
since then, it's been interesting because I think whenever I tell people about my work with the Poverty Institute, one of the things for me is that it, I see real faces, like people's faces, when I picture what we're talking about in terms of statistics, rather than sort of hearing just numbers. And and there are people who matter to me who I love. And I think for me, and then you can't shut your eyes or walk away from that. I feel like that's also for me in terms of poverty awareness for people. One of the things I want to do is to like make this be a real thing for them in their hearts, not just a kind of thing that we do because it's good, but because it it matters. That aspect of making it real and, and it matters. I'm curious how that comes to bear with your work as an Old Testament scholar. How does real connect for you with your work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the things that I love to do, I teach, I regularly teach um, a course on a biblical theology of justice course with Ambrose. When I teach that course, I get to explore throughout from the, I always say it's like the whole Bible from the from the beginning, from Genesis to the end, to Revelation, like what does it mean to think wow. about God's big picture of justice for the world? But I also think that when I teach any course, I think I, I often focus on who are in the margins of this text? We spent some time, for example, talking about Hagar as someone who was a woman and in her context, therefore, didn't have a voice um, in, her own, in her own time, who was Egyptian and a slave. And so one of the things I love to do is bring in um, scholarship with, uh, for example, womanist scholars who are coming from African-American perspectives and saying, you know, how does this, how does this echo aspects of the experience today of women who feel like their voices are lost. And so how do we see that as one of the things that's beautiful about that story is God, God sees her and hears her and she gets to name God. She names him as the one who sees her, which I think is just a really profound picture of the kind of God we serve. He's the one who sees the ones that others don't see. Mm. And to me, that's a big part of it. As I teach the Old Testament, I try to say, can we see the ones that others don't see? Um, alongside the big stories that we all kind of resonate with, you know, alongside the Abrahams and the Isaacs, can we hear, can we see the Hagars? Um, and can we, can we do that as what, how we understand what this tells us about who God is and what he wants to do in the world? That sounds critical and sounds like a, a pretty big rock in your philosophy of justice and how you would define justice. What are some of the other <laughs> big rocks, if you will? What is justice or what is a in, in particular, what is a biblical mm-hmm. of justice? Yeah, so a lot of the things I talk about in terms of what biblical justice is, is that biblical justice is bringing things to the, to what, to making things right and making things right in the way that God sees them, not necessarily even in the way we see them. Um, and in a sense, what does it mean to make things right? Then we have to look to God and say, well, what is right? And that's what's interesting is that in, in the scripture over and over again, righteousness and justice are these shared terms. They're terms that are used back and forth. And we often, uh, historically, we've often separated them. You know, we've focused on being religiously righteous, like being honoring to God and loving God, and sometimes at the expense of justice. Or in other traditions, it's almost this strong emphasis on social justice, and then not this sort of as much on, you know, what does it mean to be righteous? But in scripture, it's, mm. it's linked, you know, to, to love God impacts how we love each other. And to love each other impacts how we love God. And worship and justice are these teamed ideas. And yeah. so one of the things I talk about a lot is this idea that in order for us to make things the way God wants them to be, we have to know God and we have to know each other. Like we have to actually love God and love each other. And it's that movement back and forth again and again that shapes what justice looks like, but it also shapes what righteousness looks like. It shapes how we 
how we even worship. And so I think, uh, particularly for vineyard people, I think this is really profound because worship is so central to what it means to be vineyard. The idea that justice isn't a thing we do over there, like caring for the poor or for the marginalized isn't something that's on the outskirts of the work we do. But really, if we want to worship God, and mm. I've been a worship leader for many years, that's one of the things I love to okay. do. Um, um, and, uh, and so to me, like worship is so linked to this justice. It's there, there are these combined things that again and again, scripture keeps pushing us. Like, can you love me if you're not loving your brother or sister? And that then how we love each other affects how we love God. And then, and how we love God affects how we love one another, how we see God and see the love and grace he's given to us then reflects on how we love each other. I feel like that to me is a gift that I love to give, but also I think that that's part of what scripture gives us. Yeah. One of the new resources that, that you've helped to develop, which I'll, I'll link to our, uh, to our podcast post, is uh, there's, there's been a recent publication that's come out that you have a contribution to, which is called, Is the Gospel Good News? And you've, uh, you have a chapter mm-hmm. in, in that book. Uh, why don't you tell us about that and how that also connects to this larger view of biblical justice. I was really blessed to get to be part of um, what's called the Bing- the Bingham Conference, which happens in uh, Ontario um, each year. And I was asked to do this this paper that was part of the series on is, is the gospel good news? And when that topic came up, I thought, you know, I really want to ask the question, is the gospel good news for the poor? And what do we mean by that when we say the gospel is good news for the poor? So the article is this combination of looking at God who is king and what does it mean to think of God's kingship and the kingdom of God as shaping what it means to love the poor and that, that seeing that as in a sense at the heart of the gospel. And then I, I sort of looked at that across um, the Old Testament depicting who is God as king and who gets included in that. Um, so provision for widows and orphans and for foreigners in their midst um, and to care for that. But then we see that reflected again in Jesus's kingdom when we yeah. hit the New Testament. And we see those same groups. Jesus actually, in, in many ways, his anger comes because the leaders, some of the leaders of his time are not caring for exactly those groups and therefore not following this sort of law of justice that God has set up. And so in a sense, bringing in the kingdom both heals the emotional, the relational, those kinds of poverty, as well as the works towards economic and social injustice, like changing that. And so then at the end of the article, I actually connected it with this work I do with the Canadian Poverty Institute. And I think one of my goals was to say that poverty, how we understand what the Bible's telling us about, about who God is as king and the notion of poverty in the ancient world has real implications for how we deal with poverty today that we don't think of poverty as just economic, as an economic question, mm. that um, our tendency to make it material, to just, just make it about, do you have the physical things you need and at what level, um, misses all of these elements um, of, of other kinds of poverty that people experience and that they're often interwoven. So you can have um, you can have aspects of spiritual poverty, um, and not in a positive sense, um, like the lack of spiritual connection. You can have aspects of emotional poverty, again, like lack of emotional resources and things like that. Community poverty, the experience of social connections, mm-hmm. and you can have economic poverty. And all of those at different levels will affect whether someone can be resilient in the face of poverty. And so one of the things we did with the Poverty Institute is, su- is study child poverty, And particularly, how do these different factors impact children today? Um, 
And we did this as a Canadian study, but there's quite a bit that's been done as well in child poverty in the U.S. Um, and one of the, the the goals we had was we, we think that the definition of poverty, particularly child poverty, needed to be broader. And it needed to include all these different aspects. And mm. so one of the things I was saying in the article is that, you know, understanding all the different parts of what poverty is in scripture in turn has an impact on how we see what that means when we create definitions around poverty today, even something like can a child play safely is mm-hmm. a real question about poverty. So in, in impoverished situations, children often lose the ability to play because the physical spaces are just not safe for them. And sometimes they'll lose connection because their families may have to move or they may be moved from you know, foster care to foster care. There's so many different factors that could be a part of this. And there are the unseen aspects that often kind of go unnoticed. And then, then which when we try to treat poverty, when we try to alleviate it, we only look at did we give them food or did we give them money rather yeah. than did we actually try to meet all this set of needs that poverty impacts, the physical side of poverty, the emotional, the spiritual, like, did we deal with those things? Were we aware of them when we tried to help them? Mm-hmm. And so one of the cool things is that uh, that definition is now being used in Canada in nonprofit organizations, as well as in community development organizations, so social work and things like yeah. that. Um, they've been using it to try and say, can we look more holistically at yeah. the kids that we're taking in and their families, which I think is really exciting because it means that there's practical things that are coming out of this new way of defining what poverty means. What's your understanding of why this way of thinking is newer? Especially with you sharing some of your own experience as a vineyard worship leader, you know, you had particular experiences growing up. It it seems that all of those very naturally contributed to you having a holistic view. But then when we talk about like on a systems level, Mm -hmm. um, why is that so much harder for that to be obvious? Yeah, so I think there's two kinds of systems we could talk about. So I think um, we could talk about church systems and why it's harder for churches to see that. Let's talk about church Um, systems. (laughs) So so historically, um, even so we've talked about uh, Vineyard, for example, as within evangelicalism more broadly. So we could debate whether, you know, how evangelical are we? But we kind of are part of evangelically leaning leaning-ish into the evangelical, you know, history. So historically, evangelicalism, one of its major tenets was advocacy. So there was, um, historically, there were, they were the ones who, you know, um, cared for children and for, for women and for, um, and for slaves and for, you know, so like the history of evangelicalism includes this sort of sense of, we might say justice, right, as a piece of that advocacy. But there was a stage in uh, the history of evangelicalism when it ran up against social justice as a way of thinking of the gospel, in a sense, limiting the gospel to a social gospel. And evangelicals responded against that so strongly that they personalized the gospel. Then we get this, this almost like bifurcation, like this switching, like breaking between the two. So you get groups that are like, we're all about the social gospel. It's about social justice. That's what we care about. That's how we live out God's kingdom. And then you have another set of people, which evangelicalism can be a part of that, that said, that's not the fullness of the gospel. The gospel is about our personal relationship with Jesus. And that's really important. And if you go and do the social justice things, well, that's okay, maybe. And in some situations, that's even questionable because you might lose the real gospel. Um, And so what happened was you ended up getting this like dividing line between those who thought in terms of sort of social justice and those who thought in terms or the social gospel. And then social justice became like a 
almost like a, a term that would like alert people. Oh, hey, you think in this way compared to those who think about, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus and that being important. But the thing is that like in terms of biblical history, like yeah. that, those things were never divided. So it's interesting because I think that affects how we see poverty too. Because when we don't have a picture of social justice as part of the imagination of God, like when we we see what God really wants is just for us to get right with him, that that's the, the only thing really ultimately God wants, if that's where we're kind of leaning, um, and that any good we do beyond that's just sort of a secondary thing, not really at the heart of the gospel in any way, but kind yeah. of a thing we could do. It'd be nice if some people cared for the poor, who yeah. had a heart for it rather than it being like at the heart of what God asks of us to love him and to love each other and to love the world. So I think what happens is then we see poverty as about, we just agree with society. So this is where society happens, right? So society, it is so much easier for law policymakers to just create policies around economic. And there's a broad history for that, like why we find economic poverty as the easiest thing to try and deal with. It's just the other factors are hard to measure, first of all, and it's not, uh, how can I explain it? So historically, one of the dynamics is that, um, that economic poverty has not been seen as something that is interrelated to other things because we don't tend to think of people holistically. So like part of our history has been that we tend to divide people into the money they make or into other aspects of their identity. And because we separate those things, then we don't see them as all contributing to each other. So Mm -hmm. even in one of the things I love about the vineyard is that we do things like we pray for someone who asks for their shoulder to be healed. And then we ask them, you know, questions. Assuming there could be a spiritual aspect to the physical, right? Yes. But that notion that the spiritual and the physical are even connected to each other or that the economic and the spiritual and the physical could have implications for each other aren't things that we uh, typically think in the West. Like, it's just not a way that we've been trained to not think that way. Um, And so when we look at poverty, we see the economic side first. Um, And also, I think just in terms of Western culture, we do tend to think that money is how you fix things. Mm. Really a lie. Um, money isn't the only way you fix things. Um, money is helpful uh, and we need to donate to things, but money, um, money as the fixing thing has to do with a larger way we think in our culture that if you put money to things, that'll fix them without really thinking about all of the other implications. Um, and so, I mean, it's part of why we have a bad track record of sending money to, to places and to situations without really knowing the issues connected to them and actually sometimes making things worse by sending money, not by, you know, and so, so it's partially just because we think of money as a solution and because we haven't historically thought of ourselves as integrated things. We've thought of ourselves as like separate parts. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I love to like help people to think about is how each of our parts work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that way of thinking is actually relatively new that, and that's well new for Western thinkers. It's not new for everybody. I wouldn't say globally yeah. that this is new when I say this to my, so for example, I have a 
South Sudanese students. And they're like, yeah, of course we're connected. That's just how our, that's how we work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, um, yeah, our, like, of course our spiritual would affect our physical, like obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and I think reintegrating is interesting because I think even acknowledging that all the different parts have implications for each other yeah. is our first step to reintegrate. So like, if we, if we only think of one piece and we don't think of how it affects another, then, then we can't reintegrate. But part of the process of reintegration is saying, okay, so when I see somebody, can I see all of who they are? Can I see that all of this set of things that have made them who they are? So can I see that their history of where they come from and what their backgrounds have been, both economic, social, the culture they come from, that that has shaped who they are? Can I also see that gender is an issue and it is something that people experience, you know, and that um, the same, same culture or a same background, but a different gender will affect what that, what that experience has been. Can I see the age of a person and the degree to which that affects whether they feel that they're in the center or they're at the margins? Um, you know, someone who's a senior who's in their, say, 70s is having a really different experience, even if they're from the same culture or the same socioeconomic setting um, as someone else who's in, you know, say, in their 40s. Um, and so, those kinds of ways of seeing people as not just their parts, but to see all of their parts, <laughs> well, that, to see all the different parts of what make them who they are, yeah. um, to be able to say, like, can I think about this um, in that holistic way? And can I look at healing and health holistically? Can I see justice as something that isn't just about, uh, did someone have enough money? Right. Um, right. Or, you know, poverty as just about that, but really yeah. about, all these different ways that people experience isolation and alienation, um, a lack of engagement or, or experience um, loss or grief um, in yeah. different ways. And so yeah. can, we, can we try to find a way to do that? It's much more complicated, but it, it is actually a gift to get to do that. It, it does sound a lot more complicated. And when I think about vineyard church planters, vineyard small group leaders, ministry leaders, vineyard pastors who would resonate with this growing awareness that worship and pursuing a life of righteousness no longer allows for addressing issues of economic, social mm. Uh, spiritual poverty as an option, um, mm-hmm. but even but even just honing in on the the economic poverty, right? That it's mm-hmm. no longer an option to only serve those people if you feel called to it, mm-hmm. <laughs> or 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 you know socially marginalized in in some way, people mm-hmm. who experience social poverty, and. And so does the work that you do with the the Poverty Institute or just even in your own experience when you when you think of like, well, what would be that that first step possibly Mm -hmm. or first or second step towards that work of integrate reintegration? Because you've already named that it's messier, um, (laughs) that it might take longer. And so perhaps even for our Western churches, maybe is that the first step? Like be okay with reevaluating what your church might be doing to Mm -hmm. serve for and just be okay that if you want to go this holistic way, it's going to be messier. I don't know what. Yeah. What did you say? I, I think that um, one of the things we talk about is learning and listening. Um, yeah. And that 
learning and listening means things will always get more complicated, but it also means they'll be based in relationship. And so I think one of the dynamics that we have that creates, it makes it harder is when we other the situation, like there's some other people out there rather than sort of saying, well, how can we, um, how we start by, first of all, I even ask people like, how can we start by figuring out in our church what the different stories of people are? Okay. Um, Because I think sometimes in our church, we actually have situations where people are, in different situations yes. of poverty and we don't even know right absolutely um, people often hide that especially in um wealthier churches like where everyone else is kind of on the wealthier side um yeah. people who ex- come in and are experiencing poverty may not even be open to talking about that or to like to learning getting really getting to know each other i think is a way to start that i also think um building relationships with other churches um in other places so one of the things yeah. that um, we encourage in at my my context at Ambrose, we were in like the wealthiest part of town. A lot of my students are in like yeah. kind of these wealthy churches, and they're like, I don't know if we know poor people. <laughs> <laughs> at <laughs> like, least that's honest. Like, I like you know, I appreciate. Uh, uh, and I'm like, I, I like we we only care about the poor, but we don't know who they are. <laughs> what do we do? Um, and one of the things that I say is, um, so start to look and learn about in your community who. Where are the areas where people are experiencing poverty? Are there churches in those areas you could build relationship with? Are there people in those communities? Even starting with just their pastoral leaders, if you're a pastoral leader or in the church, if you're a congregant, like, can you connect with somebody in some other part of town potentially or somewhere else? Because we do these things where we like build these relationships across the city. um, And as part of that, um, and that's not, that's true in the inner, like we live in a kind of a big city with some suburbs. So we do some of that, but then, um, I've had people do this in rural contexts because in rural, there's rural poverty just as much as there is in big cities. Right. Um, and so often, sometimes you actually already know this. Like when I, when I say to people, like, do you know where poverty is? Yeah. You might not know a poor person, but you know where poverty is. Mm. And so sometimes people will go, oh yeah, like, yeah, if we went over there, that'd be poor people. And I'm like, oh, interesting. So do we have any relationships with them? Mm-hmm. And not relationships. Uh, the other important things I think about this is that to be allies with people who are marginalized is not to be over them or to be their savior. I think that's another really important point. This isn't about making us feel good. This is about actually loving them the way God loves them. And that's not, it's not really supposed to be a benefit to us, although it will benefit us. It will actually help shape our relationship with God, make our worship deeper and more meaningful. But it isn't first and foremost to make me feel like I'm a savior of someone else, but to be actually knowing people who are experiencing these different situations and having relationships with them and hearing from them what they need. And I think that's another big part of of this process. Whether you're talking about poverty or other kinds of injustice, um, that's a big piece of it, I think. I'd love to make some space for you to talk about your your bridge building work, which is just kind of a natural segue with mm-hmm. talking about mutuality here. Just with another one of your hats, <laughs> your your work as a co-chair for the Calgary Alliance for, for Common Good. And so you're doing um, ethnic people group reconciliation work with Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. So share share more of that. Yeah, so, um, so first, um, just to give a little history with Indigenous people in Canada. So also just to say, for those who don't know the word Indigenous, Indigenous, um, we would use in the U.S., right. Native American, yeah. or yeah. you might use First Nations. We use Indigenous here in Canada because there's three groups 
that are under Indigenous. So First Nations, okay. which are people we actually have treaties with. Métis, which which were our combination of French settlers with Indigenous people. And, um, and another third group, which are the Inuit, which uh, each group has different experiences. So we use this broad term as a way of talking about the kind of different people and what their experiences are. We would say, and, and, and I'll say this, like the lines between the U.S. and Canada on that, like they... Indigenous people don't acknowledge that there's lines there. They don't think of them as, as lines. <laughs> they so don't? They're our borderline. Oh, they don't who drew them, them Beth? <laughs> yeah, like they're aware that we drew lines <laughs> as, as colonists, but they're like, yeah, that, that line, like my, my brothers and sisters, they're, you know, on the other side of that line. And they, so they think more um, actually up and down. Okay. Across because their yeah. population groups work like that, just so that you know. So Very um, helpful. So, uh, so anyways, indigenous groups. Um, so a few years back, we, um, there was a commission, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, which we refer to as the TRC, um, which was a commission around what had happened to indigenous people in Canada, but particularly around what we call residential schools, which mm-hmm. were places that took kids out of their homes on reservations or reserves and um, brought them to sort of church spaces to assimilate them, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was the heart behind it was this idea that we'd give them God, but we'd also give them like civilization. So we'd civilize them by making them like us, like, wow. like, like settlers. Um, and in doing so, um, we, part of the story is, um, this story, stories after stories of, after stories of abuse. Mm. And so part of the story of indigenous people in Canada, and there's also similar stories in the U S as well. Um, is not and just just real quick. What percentage of Americans and Canadians would you say are even aware of this history of residential schools? Because I'll just say for myself, as an American who was born and raised in San Diego, California, I literally never, 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 never ever heard of this history until as recently as five years ago. Yeah. So I would say that before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out. I would say a very small percentage of Canadians knew about this. Yeah. The ones who were involved in it knew about it and the ones who were impacted by it knew about it, but it was a big secret. It was just like a thing people didn't talk about. Yeah. And, and I will say, um, I, Canadians, there are wonderful things about being Canadian. I love being Canadian. Um, we also really believe in privacy and being polite and that doesn't always work with telling the truth, um, about situations like this. Um, and so that Canadian privacy and politeness, um, is part of why it was not a bigger story that we shared. Um, yeah. because this is a dark part of our history and, and a complicated part of our history. So I would say that before the TRC, that was a relatively small percentage. It's a much bigger percentage now because part of the calls to action of the TRC was asking churches to write policies like public apologies, asking the government to do that. So the government gave a public apology. And then they also created curriculum in schools. So like my son came home telling me about residential schools. Um, wow. Like in tears, it was beautiful. He came home and he was like, just telling me like, oh my imagine, God. imagine they took, they took you away from your mom and your dad and you couldn't sing your songs anymore. And you couldn't do your dances and they cut your hair off. And he's like crying as he tells me about this story as though it's his story. So I think the new generation that's coming up, they will know this story, but mm. the older generations, I mean, many of them will say, I didn't even know about this until like two years ago. Yeah. And I like, I grew up in the time period it was happening. I had no idea it was happening. Yeah. So I think that there's, there's so far to go for people to know, 
but I'd say the percentage is much higher now because there's been a much more public kind of voicing of this. Um, in like a lot of our events and things that are Canadian kind of specific things. So like the Canadian celebration of the 105th um, like anniversary of Canada had very public discussions about these kinds of things. And so I would say that it's more so now, um, but there's still ways to go. Um, uh, so my work with uh, Calgary Alliance for the Common Good Calgary Alliance for the Common Good is, an, is what is called community organizing. So it's basically when you bring people together from all different backgrounds. And when I say all different backgrounds, I mean like lots of different religions and also like labor workers. So like hang out with Teamsters and like, uh, yeah. like labor union people, um, <laughs> people who do various kinds of community development, as well as like nonprofit work and social workers and people doing lots of different kinds of things. And so we all come together because we see issues in our city um, yeah. and in our town or wherever is happening and say, you know, we don't want to, we want these, these things to change and we want to work together to have power to actually make a change. Mm. And so for reconciliation, this is this sort of bubbled up to the surface as something that we see as something in our city that is, is broken and needed fixing. Yeah. And, um, and so what we wanted to do was to say, okay, how can we take this truth and reconciliation seriously? How can we take the call yeah. to action seriously and actually make them change things in our own city in Calgary? Uh, there's a whole process to kind of figure out how we were going to do that. We did some research. We spent some time with Indigenous people, lots of time with Indigenous people, and we keep spending time with Indigenous people to hear, um, so what direction should we go? And it's our team is co-led. So I said co-chair because I co-lead it with, with a woman who is Mohawk. And we really value that co-leadership between Indigenous yeah. and non-Indigenous as modeling what it means to try and do this work. Yeah. And she and I will talk about, you know, the times when I just said something, I just said something stupid and didn't think about what I said. And she's yeah. like, calls me on it. And we've been friends for years. And she, so her ability to call me on it is actually really important to even model. Yes. To say, I'm going to get called on these things again and again, because I'm going to keep messing up. I'm going to learn over time to get a little better at doing this. I am uh, always learning and I'm always listening. And that's part of my role. And I represent, when I walk into those rooms, the people who yeah. did these actions. Yes. You know, the Christians who, who hurt people. Yeah. And I always walk in knowing, like, I am... I'm a physical representation of something that hurt you. Many people, their experiences, some of them have become a, like Christians because of those stories, but also with this combination of like pain about the church while having Christian faith and others have walked completely away from the church right. and, are, and maintain that pain. And so it's an interesting combination of people in our group, even like some who would say, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian and I'm thankful for that, but I'm still have this pain from Christians and others yeah. who would say, you know, I don't want anything to do with Christianity, but I'm happy to be in the group with you. And I'm thankful that as Christian, you are trying to address this, you know, and walking in those spaces, that's, that's not easy, but I feel like it's a real gift to be able to then take that to our leaders. So we, once we've had a chance to do this research to learn, like, what are the major issues that we need to face in our city, we bring them to officials. So I've had meetings yeah. with city officials, with our, our mayor, and other, like, we've had ministers, for example, of the Canadian government who come and joined us and made commitments to make changes yeah. around the things we're working on in reconciliation. And so that's a part of what we're doing. We're mobilizing to actually change things. Yeah. Um, 
So, so to me, when you're describing work that involves working with government officials, the city mayor, you're working with these other community-based groups, that this is political work, Beth. Like you're engaging in not only the public square, but in intentionally political ways with regards to laws and, and policies. And, you know, it makes me think of something that Eugene Peterson what once said, which is, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. Mm. And uh, would you resonate with that? Because even in the States, the term community organizing is not only a political word, but it actually, for some groups or for some, yeah, for some Christians, especially that, that has a pretty negative connotation Mm. for it. But my thought is it's, it's got a negative connotation because it's coupled with a certain way of thinking about politics. Mm. So what, yeah, how, how have you made your way through that water? Yeah. So I think that one of the important distinctions is the difference between being political and being partisan. So Mm -hmm. being partisan is about being like, I'm going to support this political agenda. And I think that the fear is that if we connect ourselves in any way to politics, that we will um, become like partisans, like we're going to support a particular party or we're going to get really loud about that. And one of the rules that we have, like a really loud rule that we have is that we will not take sides. And I think that that's like, it's important. And anytime in our meeting, someone starts to say, oh, those whatever, whatever you put this, put your, put your group you don't like here. We yes. always say, so to be clear in this room, we're not partisan. And so like, we we're really like, we don't take sides. Being connected to the politics is part of being, so there's this notion in, in Greek understanding of the polis. So that's kind of the public world where we engage, we as people, it's part of our lives to engage in the public world. Like, yeah. and whether we are actively political, like we're engaged with political leaders or not, we also are actually, it's impacting us every day, whether we say that it is or not, right? Yeah. Like I can say, I'm not political, but the truth is that everything around me is impacting me every day, like where I drive and what I'm, you know, and, um, and so different yeah. Christian traditions have dealt with the notion of being part of the political world you know, in yes. different ways, like that yes. comes to terms with it in different ways. Some um, have said, you know, we need to always be very engaged in political questions. Others have said we shouldn't. And I can't, you know, deal with all of that, but I can say for myself um, as yeah. a vineyard person, yeah. I think the kingdom of God is a kingdom that asks questions about every other kingdom. Mm. So anything that sort of says, I am the ruler, right? Anything that says that, the kingdom of God always questions. I see political engagement as responding to what I believe is God's claim that he is king over everything. And so if Jesus is actually the king, the great king, yeah. then I need to use, I need to, to sort of sit in spaces where I engage the rulers and the leaders and, and call them to a vision that's actually closer to where Jesus is moving, the, where the yeah. real king, the real power is. Yeah. And, um, and so it's not about like, in, in, and so it's interesting because when I have those interactions, of course, the person I'm interacting with really wants me to like give them power, mm. right? That's what they want. Like when I go into a politician's office, they, every one of them, whatever their flavor or color <laughs> uh, in terms of, you know, red or blue or whatever, yes. um, you know, or green, <laughs> um, whatever their color, um, they, uh, they want me to support what they are doing, yeah. right? To give them power. But for me, it's actually always about the power of the true king. 
who then and going back to like my definition of like biblical justice is making things right, but the way God wants them to be right, like what God's right picture is. Yeah. And I don't think any political party just like actually knows what that is or lives that out. I think they're always doing that in faulty ways. And so part of what we're doing is actually just calling them back. I think I, that's, that's at least how I think of it. And I sort of see that as, in a sense, living out Jesus's kingdom in a very practical way. And I also think that the notion that we are, um, that we are powerless in our context, I think is one of the biggest hindrances to us doing justice. Hmm. And the belief that we, um, that we actually have no voice and no power, especially as the church, it, it actually hinders us from doing good and from like living out God's kingdom. And so one of the things that I encourage people to realize is that actually we have power with each other, not power over each other, but power alongside each other. Yeah. And that we actually have voices that can be heard if we find ways to like do that together. Yeah. And I think to me, that's what community organizing does. I, I sort of see it as, you know, power together with others um, as a way of standing against things that are going to, that basically will just hold systems of power that hurt others. And so to me, it's an act of compassion to be political, which I feel like sometimes those are separated things. Like if I say I'm a compassionate person, people don't think of that as a political thing. Yeah, but or I a justice thing. Yeah, yeah. So I just think like, okay, so one of the ways to be compassionate is to actually stand in the spaces where I actually have a voice for those alongside those who feel like they don't. Yeah. And is there, a, and then actually use that ability to change things. Because to be honest, if, if what politicians are doing otherwise are kind of grappling for the kingdom themselves yeah, and building false kingdoms, if that's really what's happening, then me just letting that happen isn't actually like to me honoring God in, in what my life looks like. Mm. So, um, so to, to me, that's kind of an outworking and it's, it's an outworking of my biblical beliefs. As I feel like again and again, we see Jesus interacting in those ways. I mean, Jesus's interactions with political leaders hold them to account. And that's true over and over again throughout scripture, the way that God kind of holds leaders to account. And so I feel like that's a part of me living out a biblical picture of justice. And, and so... Gosh, Beth, this has been so rich. I feel like we've tried to cover it all and you've actually done a pretty good job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you for the good question. At, at least in terms of these, these broad strokes, you know, of heart commitments, you know, like mm-hmm. if, if we commit in these ways in our hearts, like this is the trajectory that it would mm-hmm. set us on, you know, thinking, defining justice in a certain way, defining reconciliation, you know, you, you use this language, um, throughout our, our conversation about with, you know, power with, conversation with, you know, solving with, speaking with, uh, seems so, so critical. And w- what are the, all of the negative consequences that, that come from not recognizing the power that we have? And so if we don't believe we have power, then how could we share it? <laughs> and if we're only recognizing that someone else has power over us, then it cuts us off from mm-hmm. our own agency. So, okay, what would be a, just as a parting shout, what, what would be mm-hmm. a, a God-sized dream or mm-hmm. prayer that you have for Vineyard Canada or Vineyard as a whole? Mm-hmm. My hope is that, um, that we, would, we would lean into worship 
and justice as related things, as things mm. that, that frame each other. And I mean this in, in broad ways that our, that our songwriting, that our worship itself would reflect justice. That when we think about what we do in a morning, Sunday morning service, that it would reflect our heart for God's justice as well as our heart for God. And I think as we, as we think about what it means to be church on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or you know, when we're physically at church, but also when we live every single day, that one of the things that would happen with Vineyard is that we would see more ways to live out God's love for the, for the people around us. And, and that love that sees where injustice is happening and we just can't, we can't stand by and just let it happen. That we learn to know what those things are and that we don't see them as secondary. We see them as a part of what it means to stand before God and say, you are a great God. You are the great King. Um, and I want to live my life for you. And that that would just, that it would flow out into the rest of our lives. That that, whether, and whether that means that, you know, you cultivate a heart that, that longs to see human trafficking gone, or that you long to see poverty alleviated, or that you long to see um, whatever, whatever injustice exists, you long to see, um, you long to see immigrant families um, loved, you know? Um, I mean, whatever that looks like. Um, I think, I think that the, I love the idea that God would keep pushing us further into that. Um, my husband has this, my husband, John, has, is a theologian, also co-does my work with me with Vineyard Canada. And he has this, this idea that he says that God doesn't ask us to change the whole world at once. He asks us, what is my tree? So not the whole forest, but what is my tree? And mm-hmm. that we would dedicate our lives and our passion and our love to the tree that God has given us and that we would see it flourish. And so mm-hmm. I often ask people, well, what's your tree? What's the piece of justice that you long to see? Mm-hmm. And I would love that to be something that across Vineyard, we ask people the question. And so we're not putting all of the world, everything on every person. Yeah. We're saying, you know, what is God stirring in you? What's the Holy Spirit stirring in you? How can you move towards that? Even just one step. And how can you keep taking steps towards that? Because I think the picture gets so big that we get overwhelmed, but really it's just listening to God's spirit in this deep way. And, um, and I would love if people around the world said, oh, Vineyard, you know, I love their worship. I also love how they just live out these justice-filled, compassionate lives. If that characterized who we were across the world, that would just be such a beautiful picture to me. Mm. Amen to that. Amen to that, Beth. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, and that that wraps up this podcast uh, for for today, folks. And if you want to continue pressing into these kinds of questions that Beth raised, you know, just the interconnectivity of the way God's heart for justice moves. I want to invite everyone again to our Get Proximate conference this November in Philly, where we will dig in in these ways. You know, how do we root our justice making from a place of listening, from a place of being in place of contact and worship? So thanks again, Beth, and uh, until next time. For resources related to this episode, as well as to listen to previous podcast episodes, go to www.vineyardjusticenetwork.org. Follow us on Facebook, at Vineyard Justice Network and on Twitter and Instagram at Vineyard Justice.